Hey, my name is Andrew. Like Josh said, I'm one of the uh, teaching pastors on staff at New Life, and uh, I love coming to young adults and hanging out with y'all. Y'all are at such a pivotal age. I mean, I suppose all ages are pivotal ages in some way, but this one is such a pivotal age, and um, uh, y'all are finishing up your series on wholehearted living, and so Josh invited me to come and share a little bit, and I wanted to share a short teaching with you this morning uh, on an issue that will remain with you for most of your life and is a really challenging one, especially at this stage, kind of in your 20s. And uh, it's the question of identity, the question of identity. So I have some thoughts that I want to throw at you that have been really helpful for me and I hope will be helpful for you also. But before we jump into that, why don't we still our hearts in the presence of God and just become open and receptive. And so I want to invite you to finish up chewing your bagel here and close your eyes and just become present to the Lord. Some of you are carrying a whole lot of fear and anxiety this morning. And I'm just watching it as we're in the presence of God here. I'm watching it fall off of you. And the Lord's putting new strength and new courage in you. And all the things that you're afraid of, they're just illusions. It's not real. What's real is God and his call. What's real is the love that you're surrounded by. All that stuff that you're afraid of, not real. It's illusory. And so, Lord, we just invite your Holy Spirit here. We invite your Holy Spirit. Sometimes, Spirit, you come to us like cool water. You cleanse and refresh. And other times, you blaze among us like a burning fire. And we pray that this morning that you would blaze among us like burning fire. That you would burn away from our lives everything that holds us back from the great high purpose of God and from living in the kingdom. Help us. We pray that the words of the scripture would sing this morning. We pray that the words of the preacher would be clear this morning. And we ask that our discussions at the table would unlock things for us. That they would help us live more fully in your kingdom. We're asking that the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. Identity. Identity uh, is critical. Uh, Living in society, uh, your identity is a crucial piece of your engagement in society. We recently went on a couple-week vacation to Wisconsin, which is where I'm from. And uh, when we got back, there was a stack of mail a mile high. Andrew Arndt, Andrew Arndt, Andrew Arndt, Andrew Arndt, Andrew Arndt. And all of these bits of mail that we got are in some way, shape, or form people that have a claim 
on this particular being known as Andrew Arndt, right? And so these are things that I've either obligated myself to or because of my engagement, I have some involvement with. And so it's important that people out there, parties outside of me can identify ID, identity, right? Who is this guy? What does he promise that he's going to do? And what do we need to ask him to do? They ID me. Our ideas are crucial. You know, I think about like your driver's license, right? And we are so, you're like, think about the last time you lost your wallet. It's like, you want to throw up. Identity theft is like a real thing. You know, people stealing your stuff and, and doing things in your name that you would not have done, you know, or, or sometimes, you know, losing your ID is actually, it's kind of a nice opportunity for you. You know, you, you I hated that driver's license picture. And so you go to the DMV and you make sure that you just like, you got your chin down just right and they're not going to catch me off guard in a half blink, right? Really, the ID, our identity is a crucial thing for us and not just even for society, but I think like existentially, you know, that like, who am I question is like such a huge question. I remember being a little kid and I was real, I was kind of a plucky little fella and I remember being five or six years old and there was this guy in my church, John Specht was his name and he was about my parents' age and uh, you know how it is, like you're old enough to remember those adults that would just kind of like always get up in your grill about And it's just like, leave me, just why are you even talking to me? You know, like, leave me alone. And then the awkward thing that happens to you as an adult is that you start doing that to little kids, you know? But I remember this John Specht, he always, like, he'd look at me and he'd go, he always called me, my dad's name is Bill, and he would call me Little Bill. And it just, like, ruffled my feathers so much. Like, it's just so irritating. Like, I'm not Little Bill, you know? Or he would call me Sport all the time. Hey, Sport! And I always thought he was saying spork with a K. And either way, it was bad for me. Like, again, it really ruffled my feathers. And I would always say to him, you know, like, I would go, I'd look at him, I'd go, not spork. Andrew Burdenhart. Burden is my middle name. Andrew Burdenhart. My identity. Don't mistake my identity, you know. And the who am I question is a huge question. It's a huge question for the scriptures, too, in terms of our interaction with this God and what we shall be in the world, the scriptures are supremely concerned with our identity, who we are, what we're supposed to do. I want to read to you out of Genesis chapter 17 here. This is um, uh, the great patriarch of the Jewish faith, Abram, and he's 99 years old here, and he's had some interactions with God through the course of his life up to this point, things that have really shaped him. And then he has this really pivotal interaction right here in Genesis 17. Scripture says when Abraham, or when Abram rather, was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. And then I will make my covenant, covenants of promise and agreement between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. And then Abram fell face down. And God said to him, so Abram is overcome by this interaction with God. And God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be called the father of many nations. Okay. So Abram here is getting a glimpse into the future that God has for him. And up to this point, God has made him many great promises, promises about his family and his line, what's going to come from him. And now there's this kind of pivotal shift where God sort of uh, peels the curtain back 
on Abram's future all the more and says, it's not just about your family that's going to come from you, but Abram, like what you have gotten tangled up with in getting tangled up with me is way bigger than I've even told you about up to this point. And he says, you will be the father, not just of a lot of people, but of many nations. And no longer will you be called Abram. Now, Abram means exalted father. And that was the name that his parents gave him exalted father, that he would be this sort of great man over his family. But God here shifts his identity. You will no longer be called Abram, but your name will be Abraham. It's a shift. It's a shift. No longer are you exalted father, but I'm calling your name the father of many. So there's this moment of Abram seeing the future that God has for him in this interaction with God and God shifting something crucial In his identity, you'll be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I'm going to make you very fruitful. I'll make nations of you, and kings will come from you. And I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you in the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner. I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So there's this moment of Abram seeing something of what God has for him and his engagement with God takes that identity that he, he had up to that point and, and it shifts in a profound way. And it seems that when you read the scriptures, this happens over and over and over again, that the encounter with God does something to our sense of self-understanding. If I have agreement from anybody in here, will you say amen? Genesis chapter 32 One of uh, Abram's grandsons, Jacob. If you know anything about the story of Jacob, Jacob was born to Abram's son, Abraham's son, Isaac. And uh, Jacob was actually one of uh, a pair of twins, Jacob and Esau. Remember the story? And uh, Jacob, when he came out, the scripture says he came out grasping the heel, right? Like of his brother Esau. So there was this whole, like, like in the ancient world, who's the firstborn? Like that's kind of the crucial thing, you know? And so Esau comes out first, but Jacob comes out grasping his heel and his parents name him Jacob, which means something like he grasps the heel, which is kind of a metaphorical way of talking about how he's a deceiver. So his parents lay this identity on him right from the beginning. Like, here's this guy who's always kind of like angling in devious ways to get ahead. And as Jacob's story unfolds, this is really exactly what he does. That that identity of being one who grasps the heel, being a deceiver, it dogs him wherever he goes. In fact, he sort of makes good on his own identity by tricking his brother Esau out of Esau's birthright at exactly the moment when Isaac was about to die and leave the blessing. Like, he tricked him out of it. And so he sort of confirms this identity that he has as a deceiver. And Jacob and Esau now at this point have been parted for many years. And now there's this encounter coming where they're about to meet each other again. And as you can imagine for Jacob, it caused him a great deal of fear and doubt and existential anxiety. Like here's this guy, my older brother, who I stole the birthright from. And the blessing from, and we've been parted for many years and he's grown into a powerful man. I'm pretty powerful myself, but he's like real powerful. And I don't know what this interaction is going to be like. Is he going to be nice to me on the surface and then set me up to kill me? Like what is going to happen here? And so in the midst of this fear and doubt and existential anxiety, we come to this moment, Genesis chapter 32 and verse 22, 
Scripture says that night, the night before the encounter with his brother Esau, Jacob got up and he took his wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And after he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. And so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. Naturally, we're done wrestling when the morning comes around. Let me go for it's daybreak. And Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So that old tenacity of Jacob's is still there, but something now is changing with it. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Like, I'm sure that for Jacob, every time he said his name, that old, weird, warped history of his came back to him. What's your name? Deceiver. What's your name? Oh, I'm the guy that can only angle to get ahead. Can never get ahead by my own power. Can never get ahead by my own identity. Can never get ahead by my own strength. I'm kind of a devious fella. I'm Jacob. And listen to what the man says. The man says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with human beings. And you have overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why are you asking me my name? And then he, what's the word? Are we... What's the word there? And he, and he blessed him. He wrestled. He didn't know it at the time, but he was wrestling with God. And God took that whole old identity, Jacob, deceiver, the deviant one, the one who has to angle to try to get ahead. And the Lord takes that. And in one fell swoop, he goes, you're no longer that man. You're not the man who needs to like use all of these devious ways to get ahead, but you're, you're a man of strength. You're a man of power. You're a man of ability. You have struggled with God and with human beings, and you have overcome. And something you can imagine in that moment of blessing and shifting identity. Something in Jacob wakes up, right? Something in Jacob wakes up, and he becomes the man that God had called him to be. What I'm suggesting to you is that in the biblical record and to the biblical mind, the encounter with God does at least two things to us. When we think about our identity, you can put the next slide up on the screen, Greg. In the Bible, our identity, two things about it. One, and I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. One, our identity is given to us by God. Our true identity, our deepest identity. That identity is not something that man makes up, okay? And it's not something that's just put on us by other people. It's something that's given to us by God. And number two, it is always bound up with the future that God has for us, which only God really knows. Okay? Just let those sink in for a minute here. In the Bible, our identity is one, given to us by God, and it's two, bound up with the future that God has for us, which only he really knows. Now... In our culture, when we think about identity, how we identify ourselves, typically our sense of identity comes from one of two different sources. The most basic source that we get our sense of identity from is number one. You can put the next slide up on the screen, Greg. We get um, our sense of identity from our past, my past. So my family, my friends, the community around me, And the experiences that I have had up to this point, all of this shapes who we are. 
And uh, it doesn't, that doesn't have to be a totally negative thing either, okay? I grew up in a great family. The Arndt family is a wonderful family. It has its warts, but it's a good family. And the church that I grew up in, Believer's Church, Marshfield, Wisconsin, it had its warts, but it was a good church. And I was surrounded by good people and good friends. And that becomes a powerful source of identity. When I think about, when I call up in my name, my mind, the name Andrew Arndt, and I open that file... Uh, my past is full of a lot of things that really shaped me in a powerful way. But that's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because even in the best of circumstances, when you've grown up in a good family, in a good community, in good church, and all that stuff, there still is, it's still limited by what human beings think about you. It's still limited by their own fallen sense of perception about who you are and what you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to be fixed in this community and these experiences, right? And how many of you have experienced, I mean, it's, I, to me, it's like the rite of passage, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Part of what you're doing is you kind of come to this realization where you go, you know, the community that I grew up in threw a script on me. Like I, okay, yeah, I know that you all love me, but you want me to like play a role here. And what if I don't want to play that role? Or what if I think I should be playing a different role? And there's like, there's a sense in which sometimes that can become uncomfortable, right? It becomes like constricting and it's all the worse if the people that you were surrounded by were not good people. Now they throw incredibly corrupt identities on you. And so much of the energy of your life then becomes this sort of rabid attempt to break away from what was put on you at the start. So for a lot of us, and probably the most basic way that we get our sense of identity is from our, our past. And for a lot of people, that becomes very powerful for them, so powerful that they never adapt out of it. Their past in some way, shape, or form, whether positively or negatively, always creates the energy even for their future understandings of who they are. Are we on the same page this morning? So my past. But number two, and this is a very modern phenomenon, I would say in the last hundred years and especially in the last 20 years or so in our culture, this has become, this has become enormous in the attempt to break away from what all those people out there say about who I am, the man, the system, right? We rage against the system. And so what we do then is we fall into the inner quest for the real me, right? The inner quest. What we think is, well, the community around me misunderstands who I am, but I know deep down who I really am. And so, so much of our energy then becomes this living repudiation of all that everybody has said about us. And what we do then is we try to drill down deep to the center. We envision ourselves as like an onion, right? <sighs> layer after layer. I'm not who my parents said I was, right? I'm not who my brothers and sisters say I am. I'm not who my school says I was. I'm not who this person said I was. I'm not, I'm not what my failures say that I am, right? We keep like trying to try, dig away. And what we're hoping to find is we're hoping to find that clear nugget of existential insight. We go, oh, this is who I am. And screw all you people out there, right? I have discovered the real me. And then all of the energy of our lives becomes this sort of like, you got to see who I am. And I have to actualize the real me. I'm a beautiful person. I'm a talented person. I have these gifts and characteristics. This is who I am. This is what... I do, and I just want to say to you 
that a lot of people who have gone on that interior quest to find themselves have discovered that there is no bottom to that pit. You just keep tearing back layer after layer after layer after layer. And the moment that you think you have come upon the existential insight into who you are that will now define you for the rest of your life, that can be solid ground for you, you find that that shifts underneath your feet. I'm saying to you this morning that it's not enough. Are we on the same page this morning? I told you that I was in Wisconsin for a vacation a couple weeks ago, my hometown, Marshfield, Wisconsin. I have like five generations probably of family in that area. And so one of the last days that we were there, I went on a jog and I jogged by the town cemetery where a lot of my family members are buried. And so I went to the plot. There's kind of this aren't plot. And so I went there and I kind of got, I was sort of in this, I, maybe it's a creepy thing to do, you know, exercising. And it's like, Oh, okay. Well, the graveyard <laughs> we'll stop there. But I did it cause it was there and I wanted to, I'm kind of a sentimental guy. So I wanted to do some reminiscing, have some deep thoughts and I started, and I got them, and I started wandering around the cemetery, and I just thought that, like, something about that struck me, that even in the cemetery, you know, what we're doing is we're trying to memorialize people. We're trying to remember who these people were, what they did, who their identity is. James, Herman, aren't, you know. 1934 to 1995, right? And the cemetery is all about that. It's all about trying to claim for posterity the identities that these people have made. But, you know, like what really hit me was walking around those gravestones and how seeing that even in our best attempt to preserve identity for these people, what happens? The wind and the rain come and the sun shines and the years pass. And on many of those gravestones, the names are worn off. (laughs) And so the associations that they had in life, those people have died out. And the things that they did in life, those things are fading from memory. And even their names are wearing off of their gravestones. And I thought to myself, if that isn't a statement of the human condition, I don't know what is. Every attempt, this is what I want to say to you this morning, to define ourselves. And you can put the next slide up on the screen, Greg. Every humanly derived identity, whether that's what people have said about you. So number one, my past or number two, that sort of inner quest for the real me, it's humanly derived and every humanly derived identity is destined for the grave. The judgment of oblivion hangs over it and it is inherently unstable. You can't derive a stable identity from anything based in human beings. Thank you. I deserve an amen. You can't. It doesn't work. And God knows that. Which is why in the scriptures, the thing that you see over and over and over again is that our identity is not fixed in the human, but our identity is, the theologians would say, our identity is eschatological. It comes from the future and it lives in God. Paul said, In Colossians 3, and you don't have this, Greg, so don't panic. Paul said in Colossians 3, he said that you have died in baptism. And he said, and your life is now, do you know the rest of the scripture? Your life is now hidden, where? With Christ in God. That's, so if you want to know who you are, it's in him. 
It's not in human beings and it's not buried somewhere deep in who you are. Just try it. That inner quest for the real me. What you will find is a hall of mirrors. You'll find a labyrinth of confusion and despair. And the moment you think that you have landed on the real me, what you'll find is even that is just a sort of mashup of culture and hopes and dreams and ambitions that are fixed in fallen human beings. And Paul says it's better than that. When you come to Jesus Christ, what happens is the old identity, the old man dies away. And a new man is born in the power of God. Your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And Paul says, and when Christ, who is your life, appears at the end of history, then you also, who you really are, will appear with him in glory. I know this isn't like a worship service, but I got to preaching this morning. Somebody please give me an amen. All right. It's in him. It's in him. We don't fix it in who we are. One of my favorite authors uh, was a Catholic theologian in the 20th century by the name of Hans Urs von Balthasar. And he wrote this brilliant book on prayer in which he's exploring how do we develop as the people that God has made us to be in prayer and in our interaction with God. And he says this. He says, in obeying the calling of Jesus, that is how a person fulfills their essence. Although they never would have been able to discover their essence within themselves. They wouldn't have been able to discover it by descending into the center of their natural being, their superego, their subconscious or superconscious, by studying his, their predispositions, yearnings, talents, or potential. He says, and then he, I love this. This is one of my favorite things I've ever read in the entire world. He says, Simon the fisherman could have explored every region of his ego prior to his encounter with Christ but he would not have found Peter there. For the present, the form summed up by the name Peter, the particular mission reserved for him alone, is hidden in the mystery of Christ's own soul. Are you with me this morning? Simon can't find Peter by descending into Simon's heart. Simon finds Peter by saying yes to Jesus. And when he says yes to Jesus, Simon steps outside of the boundaries of who he has been. And he begins to become who he will be in God. Then and there, Christ confronts him with his new identity, unyielding, demanding obedience. And it will be the fulfillment of everything that in Simon he vainly sought. And each time Simon follows the understanding native to Simon, he will go dangerously astray. Whereas he will always hit the mark when refusing to confer with flesh and blood, he attends only to his commission, which reveals the Father's will to him. Guys, everyone in this room, everyone who comes underneath the canopy of this worship center this morning, every person on planet Earth is asking the question, who am I? Who am I? What am I? And how do I do, how do I fulfill everything that I'm supposed to do and fulfill what Christianity knows and what it says with breathless insistence is that the only way that we find ourselves is by losing ourselves in him. And we do not have to. In fact, if we're going to follow Jesus, we cannot be defined by what people have said about us. And we also cannot be defined by some descent into the superego to figure out who we are. You know how we know who we are? Christ Jesus comes to us and he says, follow me. 
And in saying yes to him, we leave behind even the vain attempt to discover ourselves. We go, I don't even, you know, it's not my job really to know myself. My job is to say yes and to say yes and to say yes and to say yes. And when my yeses fail because I said no, then I'm going to plead for mercy. And I'm just, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep casting myself at the feet of Jesus. And I'm going to wake up at the end of my life and I will have achieved an identity, but not by trying to achieve an identity. I'll have an identity because I said yes to Jesus. And who am I in this life? I don't know. I'm beloved by Jesus. And that's all I know. And when that starts happening to you, I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, that is the place of freedom. Thank you. So I have three questions for you that I want you to discuss at the table this morning. And they're up on the screen here. Question number one, where have been or are, or what have been or are the most powerful sources of identity for you? So where do you derive your most profound sense of identity? Where in your life have you experienced living from your God-given identity in Christ? So what has been or is the most powerful source of identity for you? Where in your life have you experienced living from your God-given identity in Christ? And then where do you feel like you need to experience it all the more? Spend a few minutes discussing at your tables and then I'll wrap us up. All right, y'all. Sounds like you had some good table discussion. I'm glad for that. I want to close uh, with a reading of a bit of poetry um, from a guy who has been really one of the most influential Christian thinkers, pastors, a guy that I think is, uh, I would say, a modern-day church father. And uh, by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you know anything about Bonhoeffer's life, um, he really came to prominence during the time when Nazism was on the rise in Germany. And as a pastor, he felt that it was, and a theologian, he felt like it was his responsibility to resist that. And he was imprisoned uh, for his resistance attempts. Um, And this is towards the end of his life. He's been trapped in this prison cell. It was a really horrible situation for him for a very long time. And he's actually not far from his execution at this point. So he, and I think he kind of knows that. He sort of knows that his time is drawing near and it throws all of the existential questions on you. And he wrote this poem, which I think captures what we talked about this morning so brilliantly. The poem's name is Who Am I? Who am I, he writes. They often tell me that I would step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, and firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? Well, they often tell me I would talk to my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as though it were mine to command. He's talking about people's perception of him. Who am I? They also tell me that I would bear the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I really then all that that which other people tell of, or am I only what I know of myself? So now he's shifting to talking about how he feels in his own soul. He says, or am I only what I know of myself, restless, longing, and sick like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, trembling with anger at despotisms and petty humiliation, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? This person? Or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once? 
a hypocrite before others or before myself, a contemptibly woebegone weakling? Or is it something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Do you hear his confusion of soul trying to figure out who he is? Then he says this, who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. You will never find yourself by looking in the faces of other people, and you will never find yourself by looking inside of yourself. The call of the gospel is to abandon our lives to Jesus. So my prayer for you this morning, young adults, is that you would know yourself in the one who gave himself to you, and that every false identity, every identity that has nothing to do with that which the everlasting God is giving you in Christ Jesus and promising you for a future in him, that all of that identity would fall to the ground null and void, and you would live only and exclusively in your yes to the will of God. So do it in these folks, Lord, I pray. I'm praying that the Lord would bless you and keep you as you go. That he would cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you, that the Lord would turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. You are loved. See you next time.